Well, please turn with me in our Bibles this morning uh, to Mark chapter 15. And we are turning to verse 33. If you're using the church Bibles, you'll find this on page 853. Over the last number of weeks, we have been really trying to crystallize some of the Uh, experiences of Jesus that he was uh, betrayed he was uh, condemned he was mocked uh, he was crucified and this morning we're really trying to crystallize the fact that Christ died and uh, what the significance of Christ's death is so we'll be reading at verse 33 uh, and we'll read uh, down uh, to the uh, verse 41 And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this this man was the son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. In Mark's gospel, we uh, have been seeing how quickly things developed uh, around the end of Jesus's life. You remember at the beginning of this chapter, uh, Mark has been uh, giving us a sequence of the events to this day, uh, highlighting how quickly these things uh, took uh, effect. There in verse 1 of this 15th chapter, it says, And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests uh, held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away to Pilate. In other words, at the breaking of dawn, Uh, These things were already decided. They met uh, early uh, in the morning hours uh, before sunrise. And by sunrise, they had brought him to Pilate in order to have him uh, put to death uh, with charges that he was undermining the political governing authorities. The charge was that he was making himself out to being a king. And this would be grounds worthy of having him put to death. You remember that Pilate wasn't convinced uh, that this was something that required a death sentence. This man has done nothing worthy uh, of being put to death. I find no guilt in this man. And so Pilate tried to resist uh, this movement of having Jesus put to death. But the pressure of the crowd uh, augmented. Uh, You are no friend of Caesar's if you don't have this man put to death. And eventually Pilate gave in. 
uh, to their wishes. He released a man, Barabbas, a robber, uh, and he ultimately had Jesus scourged uh, before ultimately being crucified. We're told in Mark's gospel in verse 25 that uh, it says uh, that Jesus was crucified at the third hour. That is nine in the morning. Uh, So already the day is taking shape, and by morning hour, uh, by 9 a.m., Jesus is hanging on the cross. But now as we uh, turn to our passage this morning, we're told that it is now the sixth hour. Uh, Jesus has been hanging on the cross for three hours. But we really want to zero in on this, uh, these verses this morning and thinking about the death of Jesus. And we want to see that because Jesus died, he satisfied the justice of God. And because Jesus was put to death, all who believe in him have life. That Jesus' death brings life to all who trust in him. And we want to think about uh, this event in two thoughts. We want to think about the occasion of Jesus' death. And then we want to think about the outcome of Jesus' death. Well, first, there is the, uh, the occasion of Jesus' death. Uh, we already mentioned some of the developments uh, uh, in Mark's gospel here. Uh, but it is now midday in verse 33. Uh, it says it's the sixth hour. Uh, that not only tells us a time reference for how long Jesus has been hanging on the cross, but it's also highlighting to us something of the occasion of the day. Midday is the sixth hour. It's noon. Uh, it's, it's the time of the day when it should be brightest. But here we're told that on this day, that it is a day that is marked with darkness. It tells us there, it was a sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. For three hours, there will be darkness over the land when you would expect there to be light. Mark doesn't try to explain how or trying to describe the, the scenario of how it was that darkness came over the land. But rather, he simply establishes the fact that it was dark on that day. And the darkness has significance. That the darkness is something that helps us understand what was taking place. Because darkness uh, is really uh, the absence of light. When you think about darkness, you're thinking about light being withdrawn. You're thinking about the absence of light. But in scripture, darkness is used to describe the withdrawal or the absence of God's favor. It is the removal of God's grace and the exposure to God's judgment. In the Old Covenant, when the people of Israel were still in the land of Egypt, uh, it tells us that one of the plagues that God brought on the land of Egypt was the ninth plague, the plague of darkness. And that darkness was over the land of Egypt, except where the Israelites were all situated. Where the Israelites were, there was light. But everywhere else, there was darkness. And that darkness was communicating something of God's judgment on the land. That they were, they were now faced with the withdrawal of God's favor. And they were going to be exposed uh, to the judgment of God. And that, that ultimately came in that tenth plague as well. But that, that scenario became a pattern for how God's servants would talk about God's judgment. The prophets would speak about God's judgment using that metaphor, using that image of darkness, 
uh, to convey God's judgment. The prophet Amos, which we just read of uh, in Amos 8, he says, and on that day, describing the Lord's judgment that would come, he says, on that day, declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the mourning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. In that passage, Amos was warning of God's judgment coming upon the unrighteous people of Israel for their sins. And so in that day, God's judgment was communicated through the image of darkness. But here, on the occasion when Jesus is being put to death, it's an occasion of darkness. The one who described himself as the light of the world is now hanging in darkness. And that is is meant to teach us something about who this man is, but also what he is doing. So it is occasioned by darkness. But there's a second mark of how this death comes about. It's in verse 34. It is occasioned by a great cry. It tells us that at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's a profound mystery uh, to those words. Uh, To be able to fully wrap our our minds around what Jesus is saying uh, can be beyond us. And yet we can't simply ignore them if we're going to understand what Jesus is going through. Jesus says those words in order to express what he recognizes. Sometimes people uh, struggle to express themselves or to speak about things that are unspeakable. When a person has gone through a traumatic experience, it can be hard to verbalize words. It can be hard to put them out themselves. And sometimes it can be helpful simply to meditate on the Psalms and then to find those words to express yourself what that experience has done to you. But it's important that as we come to think about what Jesus is doing here, Jesus is not simply quoting scripture because it's helpful for articulating what he's experiencing. He's also quoting scripture because the scripture was talking about what he would experience. That Psalm 22 is capturing what the Lord's anointed would go through. And Jesus recognizes that. This is the only occasion in all of the Gospels where Jesus prays and he doesn't say Abba. Or where Jesus doesn't pray Father. Jesus in all these other occasions, shows a great intimacy, a great conscious awareness of the favor of God, a great understanding of confidence that he is doing the Lord's pleasure. But here he reverts back to my God. Jesus here is no longer enjoying that conscious awareness of the Father's delight in him. And so he is reverting back to the words of Scripture to be able to express what it is that he is going through, to be able to articulate what he is experiencing himself. And so it is insightful for us to be able to appreciate, if we're going to appreciate Jesus' final hours, 
to realize how Jesus verbalizes what he's going through. He articulates his experience through the words of the psalm. And he says, that's my experience. That's what I was going through. And he knows it. He was abandoned. He was forsaken. He was mocked. But Jesus wasn't caught off guard by all of that. And as one person, Ligon Duncan, makes the point, he says he trusts despite all the evidence to the contrary that God will vindicate him. You see, when Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why are you forsaking me? He's not saying that because he's suddenly in shock that things have come to this point. It's not as though Jesus is disillusioned that he thought he would be spared of the cross and that suddenly he finds himself not being delivered. That's not at all what is happening. Because we know that Jesus made many predictions. The whole idea of going to Jerusalem, he said, was anticipated by that he would be handed over to be crucified, but that he would be raised on the third day. Jesus knew these things were going to develop like this. But when Jesus says these words, it's capturing something of what he's experiencing, that he is no longer enjoying that constant communion of the favor of God. It captures something of the substance of his sufferings, that what he is suffering is not merely physical, but it's an agony of the soul. And it captures something of the silence of God. And so he cries out, but there is no answer. Father, I know that you always hear me. I thank you, Father. Even before he does miracles, Jesus can speak with confidence. He can hear the Father's voice. But here, there's silence. And yet he continues to cling, trusting in God that he will be vindicated because he knows his Bible, because he knows that Psalm 22 ends in vindication. He knows it doesn't end in mockery and shame, but the Lord will deliver him. And so this cry is shaping the way that we think about how Jesus is processing, even from the cross, what is going on. The light of the world is hanging in darkness. His agony is not simply crying out against the Romans. His agony is not simply crying out against the mockers who pass by him. His agony is directed at God. My God, why have you forsaken me? And so if we're going to understand the death of Jesus, we have to think about it in light of these events. Why is it that there was such darkness over the land? And why is it that Jesus directs his attention and his, his communication vertical to God? Why is it that Jesus thinks that this is all about him and God? We're told as well that some of the bystanders uh, were hearing uh, Jesus say these words. And some of the bystanders hearing it said he is calling for Elijah. Uh, the fact that they think that he is calling for Elijah tells us that these bystanders were Jewish bystanders. Uh, the reason for that is because um, Elijah was one who... Uh, escaped death. You remember in the Old Testament, he was brought up to the Lord uh, in the chariot of fire. But in popular Judaism, 
Elijah was thought of as one that you could call to and that in times of crises, he would come and rescue his people. And because the word El, as in God, and Eli, Elijah, are very close together, these people are confused and mistakenly think that Jesus is calling for Elijah. And so some of them are curious and wanting to see whether or not Elijah will come at his beckoning. Someone uh, went to get uh, a sponge with sour wine to give to Jesus to drink, uh, but uh, we're told that they wanted to wait and to see whether or not uh, Elijah did come. And once again, we see an echo of scripture. In Psalm 69, it says, I looked for pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. But Jesus wasn't calling for Elijah here. His words were directed at God. His words were expressing the sorrow of his soul. His words were expressing the reality of what he was passing through. That what he was going through right now was something that was between him and his God. It was, it was because he was being judged in the darkness. He was the object of the judgment of God. And so he expresses this uh, even from the cross. The crowds were already opposed to Jesus. You remember, they were mocking uh, him as they passed by. You who would save yourself, come down from the cross that we might believe in you. But as they were expressing their opposition to Jesus, uh, they failed to appreciate what he was actually saying. They were so fixated on the thought that Jesus could not save, that they could only understand Jesus' words in that light. He must be asking Elijah to save him because he can't save himself. They were so fixed on that idea about being saved from the cross that they listened to Jesus' words as some kind of rescue prayer. He must be asking Elijah for help. They weren't truly listening. Maybe you have had the experience yourself of discovering that you were talking to someone, but you weren't really listening to them. In some conversation, you may have a disagreement with someone, and you anticipate what they're going to say next. You, you think you know where they're going, and you assume their, uh, their pathway of thought, and you continue to press on your point, but you're no longer actually listening to what they're saying. You're assuming what they're saying, and you jump to conclusions uh, that are wrong-headed. You take their words through the window of what you think they are saying rather than genuinely trying to hear what they are saying. We can all do that. But we can do that not just in our conversations with one another. We can do that even with God and with his word. When we're not really listening to what God's word says. Either because we've already decided that it's not true like the mockers were already decided that Jesus wasn't the Messiah, or because we're already decided on our way of life. And so even when we hear God's word, even when we hear God's truth, we're only listening to it to try and find holes to punch at it, to be able to justify why we can continue the way we are living. We're not actually listening to learn, but we are listening 
to confirm our way of life. The mockers here weren't really listening to Jesus from the cross. When Jesus says these words, he's helping them understand what is going on. This is something between him and his God. Jesus is bearing the judgment of God. But from their vantage point, they're not listening that way. Rather, they're simply jeering that he's calling out for Elijah. But as we think about this, let me ask you, as you contemplate Jesus hanging on the cross and crying out these words of abandonment, do you see Jesus as expressing an agony that goes beyond physical suffering? Do you see that Jesus' focus goes beyond his physical torment? That it doesn't deal with the Romans? That it's not concerned so much as what is being mocked at him? But that primarily Jesus is troubled about his relationship with the Father? Do you see that in his words? And then with that, why does Jesus cry out a sense of abandonment? unless he is crying out this sense of abandonment because he is being judged. Jesus is hanging in the darkness, exposed, because the, the grace of God has been withdrawn. He is now the object of the Father's wrath. He is now the object uh, of judgment. There's another aspect uh, to the occasion of Jesus' death. In verse 37, it says, And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. When a person was crucified, you can imagine that their, their physical strength would wane, that their, their stamina, their, their endurance would decrease with time. Each time they pull themselves back up to be able to breathe and then collapse back down, they're going to have less strength to keep doing it. And as a result, they would ultimately move to the point of absolute exhaustion. They would have less strength. They would have less energy. They would have less ability. But here, even at the end, before Jesus breathes his last, it tells us that he cries out with a loud voice, highlighting again something that Jesus taught, that no one takes his life from him. He lays it down of his own accord. That Jesus will die when Jesus is ready to submit the spirit. And Jesus ultimately does that as an act of obedience. And so the occasion of Jesus' death is one in which it is surrounded by the darkness. It is one in which Jesus utters this great cry unto God as he is expressing and clinging to his hope of God's vindication. But what is the outcome of Jesus' death? We can understand the significance of uh, Jesus dying in verses 38 and 39. It tells us, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Uh, the temple, which was nearby, uh, had multiple curtains. There was an inner curtain and there was an outer curtain. The outer curtain was a curtain that was visible to all people because it separated the court of the Israelites from the court of the women. All people could see that visible uh, veil. That curtain was 60 feet uh, in uh, uh, height and 30 feet in width. Uh, 
it was a, a big curtain uh, and something that would have been uh, seen by everyone. But there was another curtain. There was a curtain on the inside of the temple. A, a, a veil, a curtain that separated what was known as the holy place from the most holy place. And when you think about the temple, you're really thinking about as you come closer and closer to the center, you're coming closer and closer to the presence of God. And no one could go into the most holy place unless you were the high priest. And only on the Day of Atonement, and only with the blood of sacrifice. And it's hard to be certain as to which curtain is being meant here, whether it is the outer curtain or whether it's the inner curtain. But the effect is much the same, because the curtain was a wall of separation. It was a wall that reminded people that a holy God they cannot have access to because of their sin. That it's only through the blood sacrifice that one can come close to God. But it's God's desire that people would be able to have access. That's what the temple was about. And so here the, the tearing of the curtain from top to bottom teaches us that it was an act of God. And that it was something that affects the reality of all people. The tearing of the curtain alters reality. And so when you think about what it's signifying, it tells us that there is now no separation between a holy God and his people, between God and sinners who approach him in faith, that, that they have a way of access before his throne of grace. Jesus' death was to give access to the source of life, and that when we trust in Jesus, we can be made right with God. But we can think about the tearing of the, uh, of the temple curtain in another way. Not only does it remove the wall of separation and give access before God, but the tearing of the uh, temple curtain meant also that the glory of God was no longer associated with the temple. Because the temple has been fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. The tearing of the temple curtain teaches us that the work of what the temple was meant to convey has been realized. That Jesus is our temple. That in Christ we have an access point with God. And that the glory of God comes out to us in Jesus Christ. And so here when we think about Jesus died. He died and it was surrounded by a context of death and Jesus' cry unto God. But the aftermath of Jesus' death is you have this temple curtain that has been ripped from top to bottom. A 60-foot high curtain has been ripped, highlighting that this is an act that alters all of life. It changes reality. His death affects the way that we approach God. Jesus was cut off from the enjoyment of the Father's love because he was the substitute who bore the sins of many. As it says elsewhere in scripture, he was made sin for us. He was made a curse for us. As the apostle Peter explains, Christ also suffered once for all, uh, for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. 
What this means is that when a person comes to trust in Jesus, all their sins are atoned for. They no longer have to live in fear of condemnation. They no longer need to live questioning the attitude of God. So even when it feels like God is far from us, even when it feels like God is silent towards us, we can respond clinging to scripture as Jesus did, trusting that he will vindicate his people who belong to him. We cling to the fact that the temple curtain was torn. We cling to the fact that Jesus died in order to give life to sinners. We cling to the fact that God's promises have been fulfilled in the temple of God. And so we can trust even when we don't sense, even when we lack that awareness, even when there's an absence of assurance. We cling to what God has done and to what God has said. So there's the outcome of a curtain temple, uh, uh, the curtain being torn. But there's another outcome of this uh, death of Jesus. It tells us uh, in verse 39, and when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this was the son of God. Centurion was a, uh, someone that worked uh, in this field. He would have seen many people die. He would have seen many people crucified. He would have been very familiar with death. But for this centurion, something was different about this man's death. And you notice in the way that he responds, he says, truly, this was the son of God. Even that word truly there is significant. His words express that Jesus is not what outward appearances would suggest. This wasn't a rebel. This wasn't an insurrectionist. This was no ordinary putting a man to death for his crimes. When the centurion says truly, there's a sense of triumph emerging where there were lies and mischaracterizations abounding. He recognized that this was no ordinary person and that he shared a special relationship with God to whom he appealed to from the cross. He saw something that the religious people around him didn't. This centurion probably had very little background in the scriptures. And yet while the religious chief priests and the, the people were mocking Jesus, this man saw something that made him conclude he had a, he had a different relationship with God. In Matthew's gospel, it tells us that there was an earthquake and that the earthquake was part of what convicted this man, that this was something that shook all of reality, that the death of this man altered the cosmos. But it's in this way that he died, that as he dies crying out to God, it confirmed for him that this man had a relationship with God that is unique. We could look at this passage and we could say, well, the Romans had their imperial, imperial cult. They had their emperor worship. Uh, the Romans would sometimes speak about Caesars becoming sons of God. There's not really much to this claim by this centurion. 
The problem with that idea is, is that the Romans associated those who were divinized as a divine person who elevated themselves to being sons of God because of their accomplishments, because of their authority. No Roman ever thought a son of God was one by way of suffering. And no Roman associated a son of God with one who was crucified. In other words, this man is seeing something of a special relationship with God on the grounds of his suffering and through his crucifixion. Through the shame and through his death, he saw that this man had a unique relationship with the Father. And that much was clear to him. And so he testifies to this, something that others were completely blind to. And so it begs the question, how do we think about the death of Jesus? We might have the whole picture of the Bible in before us now. We might have very little of the Bible before us right now. We don't need to be experts. We may even be experts But that is not the issue. The issue is, is do we have eyes to see? Has God given you a humbleness to recognize that he has worked in history? That he's brought a savior to redeem us from our sins. That we would not be exposed to the judgment against sin itself. Jesus endured the darkness of God's judgment so that sinners don't have to. Do you see yourself as a sinner? Do you see God's salvation here? One who has brought access to God and one who gives life to those who are dead in their sins. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray as we think about the death of Christ, we pray that it would be something that uh, convicts us that this is the work of God that we would recognize not only the relationship that Jesus enjoys uh, with his Father, but that we would recognize what his work accomplishes for sinners. Help us, Lord, to realize the gravity and the weightiness of sin, but also help us to trust that uh, your word is true and that his death is for sinners. Lord, we pray uh, that we would understand ourselves as being unrighteous, but people who can be made righteous through uh, the life and death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So go before us in his name. Amen.